Hi, I'm Dave Westberg, and you're listening to Billboard Insider Podcast, where I interview industry leaders about trends impacting the U.S. out-of-home advertising business. This podcast is sponsored by the Ultimate Out-of-Home Sales Guide, the book that gives you the tools you need to sell out-of-home effectively. Purchase your copy at billboardinsider.com slash publications. I'm talking with Jim Johnson, a managing director at the out-of-home investment banking firm Johnson Freddie. Jim has been an out-of-home dealmaker for 28 years and was instrumental in arranging the sale of some Indianapolis billboards to my company in 2017. Welcome to the show, Jim. Thank you, Dave. Nice, nice to talk to you today. Jim, let's start by reviewing the out-of-home transactions market. That sounds great, Dave. To maybe put a, a slight bit of fun to it, I'll say it's all relative. <laughs> and so, so what I mean by that is the market is much better than it was in 1993 and 2009 but it's not as good as when it topped in the year 2000. But that aside, the market's healthy with lots of buyers and sellers at the moment. So I'd say on a scale of one to 10, it's somewhere between an eight and a half and a nine. Everyone always wants to know about multiples. Can you give us a sort of a range of what you're seeing multiples go for? <laughs> I love that question, Dave. I get that question every day, day in, yeah. day out. Yeah. And at the risk of being a bit evasive, when you say cash flow multiples, my first question back to the, the questionnaire is always, well, tell me how you're going to define cash flow. And what I mean by that is we've gone from a world that was an average of three years, three years EBITDA, that defined cash flow, to a world that went to TTM EBITDA, to fast forward a world in which we're in now, which is billboard cash flow as best defined and negotiated between a buyer and a seller. So, and let's let's unpack that. Um, cash flow is 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 an elusive is an elusive term, and to to apply a multiple, one would need to understand exactly which cash flow we're pointing to first. Let's unpack that a little bit. Is billboard cash flow, as I understand it, billboard cash flows revenue less lease costs, less property taxes, less utilities? Is that billboard cash flow? We generally include sales and marketing expense in there as well, Dave. And that, and that has a tendency to be the, the big fluctuator, right? Yes. Because younger, earlier stage, smaller companies with less efficiency and scale have sales and marketing that could be running 20% of sales, where a Lamar or an Outfront may have uh, an all-in sales and marketing budget of you know 10%, but look at incremental sales cost or incremental sales and marketing cost on a potential acquisition somewhere between believe it or not, as low as 2% and as high as 8%. So that does have a tendency to fluctuate billboard cash flow. And if I had to take an over-under, I would say in and out of a bunch of business cycles, if it, you know, maybe the, the average sale might be 10 times billboard cash flow, it might be higher than that for a number of factors or lower than that a number of factors. But would that be a fair kind of use 10 as the over-under and over for a good plant growing rapidly, under for a, built, a wood plant with you know few growth prospects? So if we were to agree on exactly what billboard cash flow looked like right now, and we were to agree on whether it was pro forma or it was, it was run rate or it was trailing 12 month or whatever, I'd say you know somewhere between 10 and 13 times is where yep. we're seeing things go off right now. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, a disclaimer to the to the user yes. of, of this information is, you know, we've sold things recently as high as 13 times pro forma. Yes. Uh, which may, you know, which may, if you go back on the historical data, 
look like more like a 17 or 18 times purchase, but that's not the way the buyer was looking at it. So who is most active in this current market? Oh, that's a great question, Dave. The, the pool of buyers is better than I've ever seen it. Chase, for example, JC Decoe stepped up for its first acquisition in the U.S. After yes, I saw that. Chicago. Correct, correct. They were in, in a joint venture with Interstate and uh, decided to, and then Interstate put their half on the market with, it, with an interest in monetizing it. And uh, they ran it through a process and I heard it was a very closely a very close competition, but ultimately JC Deco inched out the other potential bidders for it and and stepped up and, and made that acquisition. Not sure it's closed. I'm not sure it's closed yet, but it sounds yes. like a minute. So Dave, be, besides JC Deco, you know, another surprising chain of events is, has been that uh, Clear Channel has been active of late. I think, you know, they, they've been on a long hiatus given their ownership by iHeart and then the spin out uh, after iHeart and and capital capital constraints it's good to see them back in the market mm-hmm. outfront has been selectively buying and and of course lamar has always been the perennial perennial acquirer and couple hundred and, million a year it seems like yeah, yeah at least minimum couple hundred million a year right right pretty consistently and it, i believe when uh, the 2021 results finally fall in or the 2022 results fall in you're going to see that they've stepped up even a bit more from where they were so, and then beyond that, you've got guys like New Tradition. Yes. With their purchase of Regency and then a couple follow on transactions that they did with us recently. We closed a deal with Vector recently. Branded Cities is buying Trailhead, MH, Keystone, McWhorter, Big Outdoor, Link, Adams, Linmark, Las Vegas Billboards, Orange Barrel, Verde Outdoor, Azalea, Tier One, Creative, and of course, a whole host of others. So, Jim, you might as well say, who's active? Everybody. <laughs> the list of actives is, is dramatically better than I've ever seen it before, Dave. Yes. Have recession fears and the public stock sell-off impacted valuations? You know, I would say ever so slightly. Mm-hmm. We, we see a, just a slight bit more hesitation out of the buyer community. But, but, but you know, the business is good. Balance sheets are strong. Debt is still available, albeit, you know, a bit more expensive. So, no, we haven't really witnessed too much of a tell-off from recession fears. Jim, you see a lot of deals happen. What mistakes do sellers make when they sell? (laughs) Well, at the the risk of sounding self-serving, David, it would be not hiring an intermediary, not hiring an investment bank or a broker. Why is that a mistake? Well, I do believe hiring the right experts to get the job done is a great investment. I think with with good advice, you'll ultimately maximize on the way out. And without advice, there's a tendency to either drive into a ditch or or make a bunch of mistakes or leave some money on the table. So first off, hire a good banker. You hire a banker not to, quote unquote, find you a buyer. Mm -hmm. Really, in in my in my humble opinion, you hire a banker to make a market for you, because Mm -hmm. we, we believe here at Johnson Freddie that by making a market for your for your company or for your, the assets within your company that you're going to have the best possible outcome. So Dave, beyond uh, hiring good banker advice and hiring good legal advice and finding good tax advice when you're going to sell your company, I'd say the other thing that I've seen over the last 30 years that people do uh, not well or improperly or, or don't give enough thought to is just not cleaning the house before going to market. So what do I mean by that? I mean, you know, whether it's 
renewing the leases that should be renewed that you sort of just let dangle out there or failing to achieve an industrial strength permanent easement when, you know, there's certain elements, whether it be view shed or access or what have you in an easement, or even just something as simple as not having all your invoices in place for the last couple of years, ready to demonstrate and to verify the revenue that you produced or failing to paint your structures over a series, series of years. I, I could go on and on, but I, I think you get get the drift, Dave. Yeah. I mean, if, if there's one piece of advice that I'd, I'd lend to anybody who's thinking of selling, really spend some time cleaning the house first. And I think, Jim, a, a good <clears throat> investment banker knows both sides. I think of when we did business, you were in the middle, you were able to say, you know, you may have some room here, but you know, they really want this. So you're going to really have to do this. And you understood us, and but you also understood the other side when we bought the signs in Indy, and you were able to sort of be the middleman, communicating, making sure that we, there were no misunderstandings as to which what each party wanted in the transaction. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Dave. And, and maybe I, you know, I've done our industry of investment bankers and, and brokers a disservice by not mentioning that. But you're you're absolutely right. Part of a, a good banker is being a sh- shuttle diplomatist. Yes, <laughs> that's certainly a, an aspect of it. Certainly, you've, you've got to take the heat from both sides. Both sides want to shout at the other side, and it's best if they shout at the banker, who then goes back and yeah, and rephrases it or or, or repackages it in a way that's digestible for the other the counterparty. Yes. So there's certainly some of that. And then you know the other thing that is hard to put a value on and hard to estimate, but I know it's there, is when a seller hires an investment banker and then an investment banker approaches the market and begins to engage buyers, there's a level of trust there that the buyer is taking away from that banker being in the transaction. Because while a seller may sell its assets and go off to the beach in one transaction, the, the banker's got to make its mark in the industry for the next 20, 30, 50 years, whatever. And as a result, has a reputation to uphold. And and I think buyers take some level of trust in the fact that um, they're not going to get snookered in a transaction if a banker's involved. You touched on the out-of-home debt markets. I'd like to t- talk about the out-of-home capital markets. Let's start with debt. My sense is there there have never been so many providers as there are right now. W- what's your take? I think you're right about that, Dave. I think short of one period in history, which I really loved, which was like sort of 1990 to 1995, back mm-hmm. when Chase Manhattan Bank would lend somebody $10 million or... State Street, they were State, in. State Street yeah. Bank, Bank of New England... Boston Bank, Union Bank of California, yes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that was a really sort of a vibrant period for media lending. And I would venture a guess that most of those guys have vacated media lending, number one, because their balance sheets got larger. And as a result, they couldn't justify doing $10 million deals any longer. And then number two, let's not forget that a, a vast swath of the media industry has been wiped out or or dramatically negatively impaired, right? Whether we're talking about linear television or radio or newspaper or publishing and, and so forth. So it is true that it's now sort of a, you've got a healthy sort of um, stable of l- outdoor lenders. Uh, a good portion of the media lending business has been wiped out. I'd love yeah. to hear your thoughts on that, Dave, because you're you you spent uh, a good part of your career in it. I can think of at least you know there are sm- there are leasing companies like Yesco still very active. There are private finance firms, couple private fa- you know my Billboard Loans company, Chris Stark Star Capital, active in the loans of you know one million, two million, and less. Uh, above about three million, you have some players like Verde and Alaris Financial, 
And my read is it's been good times. Bank balance sheets are strong. There's a lot of community and local banks that are lending. They'll flee the market if we have another recession, just like they fled the market in 2009. But the, it's quite a um, it's quite a good market right now in terms of lenders. Yeah, I, I would agree with you, Dave. And, and as part of our practice, we do valuations and appraisals in conjunction with guys trying to close bank loans. And so we see across the country uh, a whole bunch of regional and local banks that are jumping in. And I'd say prim- primarily because of the relationship. Good entrepreneurs will build relationships with local bankers and develop those over time and cultivate those and 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 keep those valuable, keep, keep them close to their heart. And those lenders will, you know, take the time to learn the outdoor business well enough to lend to one, two, three, five, five customers. They'll not, never have a portfolio of, of billboard loans, but they'll, you know, they'll, they'll view those as, as pretty interesting to the bank, if you will. What about private equity? You know, I, I know because I know who subscribes to Billboard Insider, and I would say there has been a steady increase in the number of private equity players who subscribe to Billboard Insider. And, and it seems like there's been private equity is very interested in out-of-home right now. I would say that's very true, Dave. And it's been true for a period of time, at least at least from our perspective. I, I, I can't count a week that we don't get three or four calls from private equity groups saying, hey, we've done, we've done a white paper on the out-of-home business or we've, we've studied out-of-home business or we bought some Lamar stock and that worked out well. So how do we get into this in a deeper way? Yep. And so the interest is really, really strong. The dilemma for the private equity business is how did they get scale? Mm-hmm. And getting scale in the out-of-home business, unless you're prepared to put in the time and the hard work, is very difficult. Yeah, you know, just there's only there's just so many atoms out there, right? Of that, right. Of that size and that ilk, and and then uh, you know, sort of the size of companies drops off pretty quickly. And most of these private equity guys these days want to write a fifty million dollar check, a hundred million dollar check, and, and upwards. And for them to you know justify writing a fifty million dollar check, they need a pretty sizable company in the out of home business. And, and, and there's only so people. many. There's yeah, just only and, so and many. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So. That's the rub. But having said that, and I, I would, you know, I'd love to hear more about the guys that are subscribing to Billboard Insider. But I, we have seen of late several several groups coming down market. Yes. Meaning, meaning instead of requiring 10 million of EBITDA, they're, you know, they're interested in companies that are doing one to two million of EBITDA. Mm-hmm. So. If you sell out-of-home advertising, you need the ultimate out-of-home sales guide. This book gives you the tools you need to sell out-of-home effectively. Wish I had the book earlier in my career, says Paul Sarah of Badger Consulting. Good stuff, comments, Keystone Outdoors, Lisa DeFelice. This gives an owner or sales manager a nice reference tool, adds Chris Kalbeck of the IBO USA. Purchase your copy of the ultimate out-of-home sales guide at billboardinsider.com backslash publications. Jim, Billboard Insider gets a lot of traffic from some passive income websites. In the conversation, I'll get an email or a phone call. Go, someone will say this. Hey, I've been reading about the billboard industry. What a great business it is. I'd like to add billboards to my investments as a passive income strategy. How do you react to that? I would tell them to go out and buy some clear channel bonds. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't agree more. Buy clear channel, buy Lamar stock. That's your yeah. passive income. Yeah, ex- exactly. I, I've, I've come across way too many people that said, wow, that's the, the simplest business in the world over the last yeah. 30 years or so that I've been doing this. And um, I, I like to say it, it's simple for the, for, for the very educated. 
<laughs> yes, you yes. Know, whether, whether you're talking about renegotiating leases or putting out, you know, developing marketing collateral or going door to door and selling outdoor or developing new sites or whatever, it's, it's you know, I've, I've been I've been hanging around with guys that are really good at that for the last thirty years, and there's not a day that goes by that I don't learn something. So you know, Jim, billboards don't run themselves. A billboard doesn't sell itself. A vinyl doesn't put itself up automatically. Lights don't stay on forever. And um, if you think you can be across the country and manage a plant, it just, that's insanity. It does not work that way. The, the, the other quote I heard that I really love on that front, Dave, is nobody ever wakes up in the morning thinking, today I'm going to go buy a billboard. Yeah. M- yeah. Meaning yeah. <laughs> customers don't just show up on your front doorstep. You yeah. Go find them. You're right. Yeah. You're right. I can't think of someone that took a passive income strategy that thrived. I cannot think of anyone. Either they got into it and they realized the billboard wasn't selling itself, they had to sell, or they got bought something that they should never have bought, they didn't understand, they overpaid and it wasn't the deal it was, or they weren't able to, because the billboards were so far away from their, their home, they weren't able to, to pay attention to them like they were supposed to. I can't think of anyone that's remotely passive income approach to a billboards and thrive. You know, Dave, the, the closest, the, the closest analogy to that is probably landmark dividend. Yes. And, and even they had had challenges from what I understand. So yes, you're right. No, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. Well, let me ask you about some of the major out of home companies. I'd love to get your thoughts, for instance, on Lamar. What do you think of Lamar? What's going on there? It may be common knowledge or it may, may not be common knowledge, but I, I do believe that Ross is, is being groomed to, mm-hmm. to be the next CEO of, of Lamar, mm-hmm. Ross Riley. Yes. Heretofore, my interactions with him have all been super favorable. He's a, you know, he's just a, a business friendly guy, likes to think outside the box, smart, affable, well-liked within the Lamar organization. And I think, I think it's a great pick. Jim, was he involved in the Lamar SPAC that just never got legs? I believe he was. And yeah. what, by the way, what's your take on the SPAC? Did, they just couldn't find find acquisition targets because they formed it. There was a great to do, and then they unwound it. They just sort of seemed to say, "Well, couldn't find anything. Couldn't find any use for the money." Yeah. So we were engaged by a, a big Wall Street firm to help them explore a SPAC in the outdoor business, Dave. Yes. Yes. And and after eighteen months worth of work we all came to the conclusion that you, it was just impossible to get scale. Mm, mm. To, to, to really uh, have a successful SPAC, from what I understand, you need to put at least 400 to $500 million to work out, out the door day one. And, wow. And, and everybody says, well, you can do that through one transaction or you can do that for, through five transactions. Well, you and I know what it's like to try to close five transactions simultaneously <laughs> without one of them going off the rails and taking right. the rest, rest off the rails, right? Right, right. So, you know, name, you know, you know give, give me the list of names that, that would equate to a four to $500 million yeah. transaction. You're right. In a, in a, single, in a single spin, it's just, man, it's, it's damn near impossible. Outfront media. I love them. I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I, from a forward-thinking, progressive sales and marketing organization, I, I think they get it like like they've never gotten it before. They're not selling space anymore. They're selling a product with lots of sex appeal, and they're and they're putting lots of sex appeal on their sales and marketing. And I think ultimately that's going to pay dividends for them. 
What's your take about how the MTA contracts rolling out? They seem to be getting close to finishing their build, and they also seem to be in a place where after needing, being a net cash requirer, that MTA contract is going to shortly be generating free cash flow for them. I'll tell you what, the product looks phenomenal. I'm in New York City often, and I'm riding the subways often, and the I forget the name, the way they present the product with a three-in-one or the, mm-hmm. you know, sort of the, the Burma shave effect on the mm-hmm. on the screens looks dynamite. One thing they do right is station domination. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. generally they're trying to sell the entire environment to one advertiser at a time and making a gigantic splash instead of, you know, trying to sell 20 flips, so to speak. So I think they're doing that right. I think ultimately it's going to pay off for them, but wow. I mean, talk about kicking off, you know, relatively shortly before COVID and then having a sale through COVID and having ridership down 90% and ridership from what I understand is still, you know, down more than 50%. Mm-hmm. It's, it's been a challenge. But revenues are coming back, seems like before riders. It's been an interesting phenomenon. That is interesting. Yeah. yeah, no, that, that, that is very interesting. And maybe that's a testament to how good the product is, you know, just, you know, the C, uh, CPM or, or whatever is going up, but the advertising is there. Clear Channel Outdoor. You know, as they used to say about the, about CBS, they're the Tiffany, the Tiffany collection of assets. <laughs> My God, when you, when you look at the sort of the, the legacy of the assets there, all, all the way back to Foster and Kleiser. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the fact that in some cases, those imprints have changed four or five times, mm-hmm. but, the asset, the, but the asset is still just as good. It's just, it fascinates me. It fascinates mm-hmm. me. They've, they've had so many challenges for so long. I mean, they've, you know, they've sort of, it's the street vendor who, who only has a couple things to sell every day, right? Because it's their, their capital constraints have been so deleterious to them that it's, it's amazing that they've been able to sail through that. But Again, the assets are so darn good. I mean, the guys that, you know, when they spun off certain markets there and when was mm-hmm. that, 2018? Yes. 17? I mean, you know, whether, whether you talk to Jim from Ashby Street or you talk to some of the Lamar guys or some of the other guys that bought some of the assets, they, are, they were just in shock with how good the assets were and how much lift there was on the assets by applying some more capital and some more hard work to them. Mm-hmm. So, what what would you do about Clear Channel Europe? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, <laughs> you know, my knee jerk is I'd sell it at, at whatever the clearing price was. But yeah. I'm sure the lenders have something to say about that. They got to clear at least three hundred million because they got don't they have a three hundred million dollar European bond issue? So they got to clear yeah. at least that much. Right, right. But Jim, I, I'll come at you with this and see what you think. My read is opportunity costs of Europe are immense. It's got very poor margins. It's been demanding 35, 40% of Clear Channel's total capital expenditures. So my, this is my take. It's the slacker kid that wants a big allowance. And, um, <laughs> and, and that's money they can't, they have great projects they could do here in the US. Acquisitions, yeah. tuck-ins, switching to digital, taking advantage of radar, and they can't do because they're having to feed a low margin European operation. So Dave, I have not spent much time in the professional world outside the United States. So I'm probably too little knowledgeable to even say this, but my sense is whether it's South America or it's Europe or it's Asia or whatever, my sense is that out of home advertising in other parts of the world is just different. It's just, 
it, it's, it plays out differently. It's more agency than it is asset ownership. It's more, you know, more willingness to, to work at lower margins. It's more uh, municipally driven. It's just, but, and, and the flip side of that is it's more nationally advertising driven as well. So you've got all of those dynamics. And so if my guess is if you're trying to run a out of home company in Europe, like you're trying to run an out of home company in the U S it's, it's a bit of a, a mistake right out of the gate. And I, I think they probably have some of that dynamic going on, mm-hmm. e- even though they, you know, Equishare had been running it for, for a long period of time and, and really had European roots. So, mm-hmm. you know, you would, one would think he would understand that. But I mean, I, I remember, oh gosh, now I'm trying to remember how this happened. It, it was either Eller Media or was it Clear Channel that bought Maiden Outdoor? Mm-hmm. And I remember sort of being brought in to do some of the diligence on Maiden and, and the way they ran that business was just so impressive. I mean, it just- Is that right? It yeah. was a, a well-oiled machine that they had a whole department dedicated to, uh, to, to responding to RFPs. Wow. Day in, wow. day in, day out. And that's just that's just different than the way we do business here in the U.S. I want to touch on Link Media. They seem to, they the, two years ago, they did a lot of acquisitions. Then they spent a year sort of digesting. They seem to be back in the market. Very selectively. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're being selective in terms of what they go after, in terms of mm-hmm. what they rationalize. Scott's done a dynamite job uh, running, the, you know, taking over from Jim. Mm-hmm. And has really, you know, positioned the company well. But I think they've been selective in terms of what they bought. I think, you know, I think they've also maybe implicitly thought that during this sort of feverish period of acquisitions, where Lamar and Outfront and others are swinging pretty hard at things, that they might not have the ability to compete at the same level. And so they've sort of, you know, taken sort of taken sidelines or taken weaker positions on possible acquisitions that, you know, that may change over the next couple of years. They're, they're running it for the long term, And so they, they can afford to sit out what they perceive as a hot market. And maybe they get involved. If we hit a recession, they get back in, in a big way. I think that's exactly right. It's, you know, slow and steady wins the race kind of philosophy, if you will. What about Adams? They've been pretty quiet. Adams. <laughs> uh, we, <laughs> first of all, I love Adams. I love Kevin Gleason. Yeah. I had the good fortune to meet Steve Adams back in the day several times. Yeah. What, a, what a gentleman he is. We actually did a, believe it or not, back in the early 1990s, we did a, a recap two or three times with Adams where we uh, had helped them refi out, would call it, you know, 100 to $120 million of debt with Heller Financial. Wow. So, you know, we go back a long ways with Adams and we love the company. I mean, it, you know, its roots are twofold, right? Uh, one is Creative Outdoor, which had a phenomenal, you know, plant across several markets and had great roots and was sort of known as, as you know, super premium builder and operator at their advertising. So they've got that in their roots. And then they've got, I think they've got Central Outdoor, which is Michigan based, which was also a great operator, albeit more of a 30 sheet player than a, than a bulletin player. So again, the, the, you know, the underlying assets that Adams continues to own are dynamite assets. They would go off at a, at a super premium price had, if they were ever to go to market. I don't think they will go to market actually anytime soon, mm-hmm. at least, but great, great company. It's, you know, I, I'm good friends with York Seaslock, So I, I think the world of him, I, I think. For him, it'll be a bit of a learning experience having having run Canadian, you know, high profile, splashy, gigantic, spectacular 
types of assets in Toronto and other places in Canada, and then also running Titan's operation in, in uh, Chicago for a while. It's just, you know, it's a different animal. Adams is a little more smaller market, local, that kind of thing. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah, very much so. Jorg is wildly creative, and, and I know Kevin values creativity up there as number one, two, or three. So I think from that perspective, we'll get along. And, 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 and you know, it'll be, it'll be really fun to watch Adams uh, progress over the next few years as management changes and as the company continues to grow. Jim, what out-of-home companies are people not paying attention to that they should? I'll put number one on the list, Orange Barrel. I think oh. Orange Barrel is a phenomenal company that was hand-built from scratch, and people would be shocked if they knew how large it was right now. Unfortunately, I'm not at liberty to say, but... And quality assets, iconic assets, right? Super quality assets. You know, their reputation in the marketplace is stellar. Everybody loves them. Anybody who does business with them loves them from a customer side, from a landlord side, from a municipal side. They're, they are certainly a company to watch. And, and having said that, I'd say new tradition, albeit a little bit of a different culture, just more of a New York City culture than a Columbus, Ohio culture, but st albeit still a great company, is another company to watch. The, fact, the, the way they were able to kind of sneak in there at the last minute, construct a dynamite deal on a lot of the Regency assets, which is phenomenal. What a, what a great sort of life-changing event for them on that one. I'll throw out Huntington Outdoor, formed by a kid that couldn't get a job out of college in the middle of the 2009 recession. Family-run firm, they're at 2,000 faces now and growing like crazy, started roots in Ohio, and now seeming to want to move across the United States. Just, yeah. you know, that, that Justin Powell, and the Powell family, just remarkable story. Remarkable yep. story. Lo love them. Love them. Yep. I just, I just, to me, it, it injects new blood into the business and, yes. and really reinvigorates the whole business when you can see people that, you know, start from nothing, bootstrap it and, and build it out the way they built it out. It's just super impressive. Another intriguing player. And again, this is someone that decides to go whole hog in the business, even though he had a job elsewhere, John Carra at Kenjo Outdoor. Mm is an engineer working at a big company, says, man, I want to get in this out-of-home business, assembles a good team, and every when I travel a lot, I'm stunned how many markets now I look around and I see great-looking Ken Joe outdoor signs. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. Jim, if you could change one thing about out-of-home, anything, what would you change? If I could change one thing, Dave, it would be content. As an industry and as individual players in the industry, we have the biggest megaphone in the world to be the agents of change. Yet instead, we just sell space. I, I think it's unfortunate that we don't get more creative, both with our commercial messages on behalf of our, our clients and customers, advertisers, and on behalf of nonprofits and, and other things that in the world that we'd like to change. We have a CRO, we have a CMO, we have a COO. Well, you know, why don't we have a, a chief content officer in every one of these decently sized outdoor companies, or at least the chief content officer at the OAAA level? Mm -hmm. Where are we on that? That's all for this week. Thanks for appearing on the show, Jim. Thank you, Dave. 
This podcast was edited by Lucas Jones and sponsored by the Ultimate Out-of-Home Sales Guide. Purchase your copy of the guide at billboardinsider.com backslash publications. You can listen to episodes of the Billboard Insider podcast by visiting billboardinsider.com or subscribing to the Billboard Insider podcast at any of the usual podcast outlets. My email is davewestberg at billboardinsider.com. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I'll be back in a couple weeks.